Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. guys, real quick PSA before I start the interview. Uh, This particular film this week has some pretty intense subject matter. We're going to talk about drug use, um, the AIDS epidemic, and it isn't really a censored discussion on that. We're just sharing our thoughts and opinions and also discussing a movie that deals with that topic, with all those topics. Uh, So I just wanted to let you know in case that's something that makes you feel uncomfortable or you have children in the room or anything like that. Um, you know, if you want to skip this episode, you're not hurting my feelings. We all have those topics we're uncomfortable with. So I just wanted to put that on your radar before you start. Thanks so much. Um, hi, this is Lisa and I have a new guest with me here today. It's actually another Gillespie. <laughs> um, we, I, we had David on here a couple episodes ago for Jurassic Park, and today we have Kelly, his wife, on here. Um, Kelly, what uh, movie are we talking about today? Uh, we're going to be talking about Train Spotting, directed by Danny Boyle. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've done a Danny Boyle film yet. So Awesome, it's be the first. I know, and he's one of my favorite directors, so I was excited about this. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess any any introductions you want to do about yourself or anything like that? Can I introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, this is a movie about heroin addiction. I should probably preface that I am not, nor have I ever been addicted to heroin. That's, that's <laughs> so, good. So this is going to be <laughs> my view as an outsider of this world and, uh, that probably is why I like it so much, but I'll get into that, you know, later. But yeah, a lot of my movies that I'm really interested in are, you know, worlds that are uh, it, realistic, but not the ones that I've experienced. So, you know, like I like Dallas Buyers Club and Train Spotting, you know, those kind of uh, movies. I can't wait to talk about that because I'm interested in that. I did notice that when you were giving me your list. <laughs> I was like, yes. hmm, they, they all have to do with like either an infectious disease or addiction. Hmm, let's talk about that. It's interesting. Yeah. I'm interested. Well, well first <laughs> off, I mean, it probably helps to know that I study disease for a living. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I'm interested in disease. And what I'm really interested in is like the AIDS epidemic because I kind of remember it. Um you know, that was all happening in the early 90s. I was in my, you know, five to 10 year old range. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember going to see the AIDS blanket. And now as an adult and a scientist, it's it's really interesting for me to look back on it. Yeah. Uh, and see like, wow, how to, you know, learn more about it. And Dallas Buyers Club kind of goes into that. 
And as far as addiction goes, I get into this, but I've had a couple people close to me that have had uh, drug addiction problems. And so I've just been super interested in like, why, you know, yeah, what, yeah. what is so wonderful about it? And, you know, there's never a good answer. So I'm constantly searching. So, sure. you know, movies like Train Spotting actually is one of the first ones where I got to look into what it's like to be a drug addict. For sure. Yeah. I think this movie and Requiem probably were the first. For oh, me. Yes. I do love Requiem. Me too. Darren like, Aronofsky. Yes. It's like one of my favorite movies ever. And when I tell people that, they're like, something's wrong with you. And I'm like, no, it's a great movie. <laughs> Jared just... Leto is a really good drug addict. Yes, yes. The, the method... And the music in that is so good. Just like in Train Spotting, you know, yeah. the music is just, it really just accents all that stuff. And uh, David actually showed me Requiem for a Dream for the first time because Darren Aronofsky is one of his favorite directors. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, I want to watch it again. He's like, I can't. It's too much. I can see that movie every like five years or 10 years. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot. You're like, David, I can see it, but I can see it like every year. <laughs> um, oh, so let's talk a little bit. Um, when did you first see this movie? Did you see it in theaters or? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been out. like very young, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it came out in 96. Mm -hmm. And so I would have been 11. And right. while my mom is very progressive, um, she would have had to be in the theater with me. And I don't think she would have cared enough to do that. Yeah. Actually, the first time I saw it was on cable TV when I was like 15 or so. So, you know, some years later, um, I used to have insomnia a lot as a kid. So I would stay up late and watch TV. And one night this movie came on and I was like, hey, I recognize that actor looking at Ewan McGregor. And um, I recognize Johnny Lee Miller, uh, mm -hmm. who was in Hackers. Yes, I saw movie. that <laughs> when I was looking this up. I was like, forgot about that. <laughs> oh, man, I loved him in Hackers. I had a bit of a crush on him in Hackers. So I was like, oh, look, he's in here. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I just sat there and watched it and became really enthralled with the story. So, you know, I was a, it's kind of a coming of age story. And I saw it when I was coming of age. There you go. So you saw it just on, on your own, just on TV? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of felt like I shouldn't see it because of all the, like, graphic drug use and sex scenes. So I'm kind of glad <laughs> I didn't see it with anybody else. Yeah. I think, yeah, I'm going to say probably in my, maybe in my early 20s when I saw it. Um, I know I saw it on DVD and I don't remember who I was with, but... You know, these movies that came out, I guess, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, all had this kind of feel to them. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there was this movie, and then Requiem, and then just a lot of, uh, I guess, kind of trippy psychological stuff. Very visual stuff. Yeah, like stuff. a dark, gritty feeling. Mm -hmm. Lots of uh, well, industrial music, <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. Well, I had read that um, the way they got some of the gritty feeling of this movie is they were on a sh like a really small budget, and so they would do like one shot takes or one take shots, I guess, all the time. And oh so yes, I read that too. That was one of my uh, little facts that they that a lot of a lot of the shots this movie are just one take. That that's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. It's like yeah, I mean that's you got to get it right the first time, I guess. I mean, they're lucky that this film turned out so well. Considering. Yeah. 
yeah. it'll probably help that the theme was so gritty and you know it doesn't need to look polished true true yeah that's a real testament to the actors to be able to pull that off yeah well i think a lot of them were pretty new actors i mean maybe not ewan mcgregor but um you know danny boyle was a fairly new director i think this mm -hmm. was like his second movie yeah, he had like one other one, like was it Grave Shift or Shallow Grave, Shallow Grave, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, he went on to do a bunch of other stuff. Um, so, and then like, you know, he had Ewan McGregor in his first movie, but like, this was Johnny Lee Miller's second movie. Um, there's another actress in there who plays Diane. It's her mm -hmm. first movie, so I think having a lot of new actors in there uh, was it makes it even more amazing that they could do all a lot of these scenes in one take. I totally agree. While we're on that note, I think I'll read the uh, synopsis real quick, and then we'll just kind of start diving into the director and the actors and all that good stuff. Sweet. Um, okay, so here we go. The synopsis of Train Spotting. Renton, deeply immersed in the Edinburgh drug scene, tries to clean up and get out despite the allure of drugs and influence of his friends. Short and sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, basically... Uh, it's basically each character has an addiction. <laughs> every right. every main character has an addiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your four main characters or so are basically stuck in this perpetual adolescence. Yes, yep. And That's a really good trying. way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're trying to figure out life, and they're doing it pretty poorly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so on that note, um, you had already mentioned the film, uh, you know, that a lot of the scenes were done in one take. Also read the entire film is shot in seven and a half weeks. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a short amount of time. <laughs> well, I, I read that, it you know, it's about Edinburgh, but it's shot in Glasgow. Yeah, I read that too. That was interesting. <laughs> so like, you know, so it's shot in Scotland. So that's all, you know, seven and a half weeks of sunshine. That's all you've get. That's all you got for the year. So right. That's, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you, you mentioned earlier, too, it's kind of a shoestring budget. Um, mm -hmm. One really interesting thing I read was that Danny Boyle credits Spike Jonze's directed uh, music video Sabotage as a major <laughs> influence of the opening scene, which I was oh. like, yes, that is like one of my favorite music videos ever. <laughs> yes. Oh, you mean where they're getting chased and he gets hit by a car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, wow, that, that it is pretty similar. I didn't think about that watching the movie but then when I read that I was like that makes a lot of sense <laughs> yeah I, oh, that's so cool that's really cool it's cool when a lot of the things you like sort of cross over into other things mm-hmm yeah. mm I um uh one of the characters in there is actually played by the author of the book that that was based on really which character yeah is so that? so the guy Mikey Forrester um oh. who who always just, I mean, he's just, he's, is this a, is this a PG? Like, can I cuss? <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead and say whatever you want. Okay. Okay. I mean, they just describe him as like a fuck up, like hands yeah. down. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, he always kind of, kind of shysty. Um, uh, he's the one that gives Renton the uh, heroin suppositories right before the toilet scene. Oh, okay. Okay. That is Irving Welsh or Irvine Welsh, however he pronounces it. And that's the author of the book, Train Spotting. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I didn't read that. That's really cool. Because yeah. I rented this, I feel like 
I, I know, I feel like I own this, but I couldn't find my copy of it, so I rented it. And the the biggest thing that you miss when you do that is you don't get to see, like, all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, you can search on YouTube, but it's not as accessible. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of going based off what I read online, but that is really interesting. Yeah, well, and I was, so I have the book, too. And if oh, you okay. if you've ever seen the book, it's... It's damn near impossible to read. Uh, <laughs> it is written. It is written how the characters sound, so with their heavy Scottish accents, and oh, wow. it's just impossible to read unless you're reading it out loud. And should you have anyone else around you, they would not appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have I have attempted to read the book once, and I have relied the rest on Danny Boyle to tell me how the story goes. <laughs> yeah, well, he is a great director, so. I think he did that pretty effectively in the film. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, especially since this was his second movie. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about him then. Let's dive into Danny Boyle. Um, Yeah. When I think about him as a director, I think about the movies The Beach. Have you seen that one? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. With Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. So, yeah. So, the movie The Beach... um, he, uh, Danny Boyle and Ewan McGregor kind of had a falling out over because he was going to originally cast Ewan in that role, but then the studios kind of pressured him to pick Leo, and he did, and he just like completely quit talking to him after that. And so that's why Ewan doesn't start star in 28 Days Later, and that's why they didn't work together again like ever or for a long time. They Eventually, they made peace, but it was like in like 2009 or something. Oh my gosh! Yeah, which I well, you know, Leo was hot then. He was coming off Titanic and Romeo and Juliet, and it's like he's not going to be the star of every movie he directs forever. Like, I I just wonder what happened. Why was that so personal? You know, but but yeah, that's one interesting fact that I read about the beach. Uh, Also, he did Sunshine. That's another movie I really like. Yes, yes, Um, yes, so so good. Uh, 28 Days Later, I already mm-hmm. mentioned that one. And then, of course, Slumdog Millionaire, the movie that he uh, won Best Achievement in Directing in 2009. Oh, nice. Yeah, I do love that. That's another movie with a really good soundtrack, Slumdog oh, yeah. Millionaire. I have the soundtrack, yeah. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he also did 127 Hours, I think. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right, that's right, yeah. That got nominated for a couple awards. I don't think it... It won them, but it was nominated. I didn't see 127 Hours. Oh, it's good. It's good. You know, there's, you know, Danny Boyle is really good about using, you know, I mentioned soundtracks, but in 127 Hours, just sound. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I don't know if it's a spoiler, but the guy cuts his arm off. And so when he's cutting through tendons and stuff, just the sound that Danny Boyle puts in there, like, that's what I think of when I think of that movie. Right. True. Yeah. He's very like visceral, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, and and it's interesting too, that he's done so many different, my husband and I were talking about last night, so many different genres, because I feel like this movie's maybe similar a little bit to the beach, but then he does things like sunshine, which is sci-fi and 28 days Mm -hmm. later is, you know, kind of a vampire flick. And then Slumdog Millionaires is like almost a musical. Like, it's just interesting how different those movies are and how different they yeah. are from this movie. Yeah. I really, I do really like that about him. I also like, he seems to have a knack for like finding actors before they get big. So like for sure, his, 
his first movie had Ewan McGregor in it. That's the Shallow Grave. It also had Christopher Eccleston, which oh. went on, who went on to be the ninth Doctor Who. Yes. Fun fact. Um, so, and then 28 Days Later was Cillian Murphy. That's the first time I saw him. Mm-hmm, same. And then Slumdog Millionaire. That's the first time I saw Dave Patel. You know, and it, it's just really cool how he's how he's able to find these just, like, really good actors. And I'm sure they did work before, you know, working with Danny Boyle. But that's, you know, that was my first experience to those actors. Yeah, I think especially bringing them to, like, American audiences, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think some of those actors, they were yeah, maybe, you know, pretty big in the, like, BBC scene. But even mm-hmm. that's really changed over the years because I feel like now we're way more aware of BBC TV. And so maybe we're seeing these actors as they become famous. But definitely back in the 90s, I I think it, it did require someone like Danny Boyle to, you know, bring them to our attention. Yeah, I think BBC America was like a top-tier cable package that was hidden <laughs> Between QVC and, you know, ESP and Ocho. Yeah. <laughs> like, you had to want to find it, and I didn't want to find it. So. You young kids have it so easy. I know. You too. <laughs> um, so, let's talk a little bit. Or, did you have any other facts about Danny Boyle? Um, I think that's it, you know, other than I could just fangirl on him for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I think oh, he's in my top tier for sure. Yeah, I did have a fun fact about where the title came from, though. Oh, oh, go for it. Yeah, so train spotting per the author, Irvine Welsh, came from, so there's an abandoned train station, Edinburgh, which is where he's from, that really was frequented by homeless people and drug addicts. And so uh, those drug addicts would say, oh, I'm going to go train spotting. To me, they were going to go to the station and shoot up. Oh, that makes sense. Because I was wondering, I was like, why is it called train spotting? Yeah, I had that thought too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. A little bit of extra facts for you guys. Um, You want to talk a little bit about Ewan McGregor? Uh, Yes. Um, Yes. (laughs) Okay, well, we already mentioned his falling out. Um, You know, obviously he was in this movie... Uh, in the three Star Wars prequels as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he was in Black Hawk Down, and one of my personal favorites, Moulin Rouge. Yes, I was wondering if you were going to say it, because <laughs> if you weren't, I was going to say it. I loved him in Moulin Rouge. Yes. You know what's funny about that movie, though, is I tried to show it to Nick, and he just went, this is really like ADD. Like <laughs> everything is happening so quickly. <laughs> I was and like, I know. <laughs> that's Boz Lerman though. You know, yeah. that's part of his, I think he was doing like a trilogy where it was, um, he did Strictly Ballroom, you yep. know, which was all about dancing. And then Romeo and Juliet, which was all about words. And then it was Moulin Rouge, which was all about singing. So that's mm-hmm. just Boz Lerman. I agree. I, I love it. I was like, you can't, take this away from me. I love it. (laughs) But yeah, I I, I really liked him. I I read a funny fact where, you know, he he mainly did kind of movies like this, indie, serious, and then he got the opportunity, and he he made a comment about how he wasn't going to do big budget stuff, and then he got cast as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and his response was like, well, it's Star Wars, like, like, what are you going to do? (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm sorry. I mean, Yeah. (laughs) 
yeah, I, I, man, this, I don't think this was the first thing I saw Ewan McGregor in, but it was maybe one of the first. And I just was like, what? Um, I think it was definitely the grittiest thing I'd seen him in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, at, at 15 and, um, I wouldn't say it was a. Sh- I had a sheltered life, but I certainly wasn't around uh, any heroin users in well, small good. town West Texas. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was definitely like, "What am I seeing? You know, this is what." Um, and I just and it was maybe one of the first times I heard his Scottish accent. Um, I didn't ah. realize he was Scottish, and actually, he is. I looked this up. He's born in Perth, which is just outside of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So he's close to or he's born pretty close to where his character mark renton is actually from oh interesting yeah there's only one there's only one actor in this movie who's not from scotland yeah i read that too that's really interesting only one of them but yeah i i don't know i don't remember the first thing i saw ewan mcgregor in but this is definitely one of the first i Mm might have seen moulin rouge before this movie but I feel like by the time I saw this, I, I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard that he actually prepared for this role by hanging out with addicts. Mm-hmm. And they showed him how to cook up. Yeah, and he, like, thought about doing it, but he was yeah. like, nah. And then he's like, maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> I think that was a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, you're doing a movie about the perils of being a heroin addict, Let's not become a heroin addict. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, Did you see Train Spotting 2? Because he comes back as Mark Renton for Train Spotting 2. I did not. I was going to ask you about that. Have Did you like it? Was it good? Um, you know, I like it clearly like the first one. I feel the first one has uh, a better storyline. It really just continues on the story. Oh, okay. And they actually got a lot of the actors. You know, unless the character died, the actors came back. I I, I was looking at um, the IMDb of that one, too, and and noticing that I will say I'm not that familiar with the other actors in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Johnny Lee Miller looked familiar to me. That's the character that plays Sick Boy. Mm -hmm. But um, the other actors, they didn't really stand out as much to me, except for Ewan Bremmer, the guy that plays Spud. He was mm-hmm. in that Wonder Woman movie. Yes, he was. He I looks saw like him in there, and I was like, same. <gasps> <laughs> He looks the same. I'm like, he, how is that possible? He does. He does. <laughs> He's he does. like the same haircut. It's funny. I was yeah. like, and I remember when I saw Wonder Woman, I thought, this guy seems familiar, but I could not place it. And then when we were watching this, I was like, oh, literally, he just looks younger, but... He's not playing the same character, but he's he's pretty out there. Yeah, the, I mean, you he kind of has similar. He kind of has unique features. You can't you can't just hide that. That's um, true. Robert Carlyle, who plays uh, Francis Begbie, mm-hmm. he's actually in Once Upon a Time. Oh, really? Yes, he's Rumpelstiltskin. Oh, okay. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. I've seen a couple episodes, but I'm not familiar with with the cast very much. Right, um, you know, well, I guess that's good for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I've seen a couple episodes just kind of in passing, mm-hmm. and um, I remember I saw him and I was like, "What are you doing?" And you know, it, it's hard for me to see him as anything but Begbie and that <laughs> you know psychopath that he plays so well. And so to see yes. him in this kind of kid show or family friendly show is just 
bizarre. You're like, do you guys know what he's capable of? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. This movie, it, it kind of reminds me, I mean, it's not the same, but the, Maybe something about the directing style Danny had, Danny Boyle had in this one, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of like early Guy Ritchie. And I think some of the actors are in, at least, I think Bremer was in Snatch, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like there's kind of a shared vibe, I think, to those movies. I mean, there's only so many actors who can speak allegibly, right? Like, or unintelligibly <laughs> or whatever. Seriously. You know, because there's that scene where uh, Spud is he's trying to apply for a job, but he can't get it because it'll actually get the job, but he can't look like he's fucking up on purpose. Cause they'll, you know, they'll, they'll catch on to him. So he takes speed. Yep. And he just talks a mile a minute and I have no idea what he's saying. And he's that's just, when, yeah. It dawned on me in that scene who he was like him acting so bananas. I was like, Oh, I know who this guy is. <laughs> oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, I really felt for his character, Spud, though, because he's probably the only one that wasn't, you know, inherently bad. (laughs) No, he was probably the most genuine character in the movie, for sure. It was definitely the saddest, though, because he never figured out how to help himself. Mm -hmm. You know, like everyone else kind of moved on or, or, or relished in their, you know, their dark underworld. But he just, he didn't want to be there, but he didn't know how to get out. Yeah. So I definitely felt the most for Spud, and, and Ewan Bremer did a good job. <laughs> for sure. Everybody, yeah. I think uh, the fact that it was, like we said before, on a sh- kind of a shoestring budget, um, just an amazing director, and then really strong, like, character actors, you know, carrying this movie, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to talk about, uh, we could do it one, way, uh, one of two ways. You can talk about the, the plot, like, just go through the plot, or you can just kind of cherry pick some of your favorite scenes. Okay. Uh, mm, I I don't know which one do you think is best. I mean, um, it's probably easier to pick your favorite scenes. That, okay. Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of my favorite scenes is you know actually the opening um, where Rent has or Renton has his uh, little uh, monologue about choose life. Yes. And then you it, know, it ends the movie with that monologue yes. as well. Yeah. Yes, nice little bookends there. Mm-hmm. Little tie back. Um, I just love the the the, the choose life because it's this sarcastic refusal of the quote unquote joys of life. You know, your fucking mm-hmm. big television, your electric tin opener, um, and he just refuses those for the joys of heroin. You know, saying mm-hmm. you know people associated with misery and death, but you know what they forget is the pleasure of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. And. You know, then it's mirrored, like you said, at the end of the movie where Mark refuses the joys of heroin and decides to choose life. And yeah. uh, in Train Spotting 2, they actually have another one of those. Oh, really? Choose life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like you were touching on this earlier, but, you know, they, they say, or, or one mark of addiction is that, I guess, whenever you're first getting very addicted, um, it, it does like stunt your growth emotionally and that sometimes people when they've recovered, even after they've gotten over the addiction, they're sort of stuck um, maturity level wise in that time that they originally got addicted. So I feel like in this movie, him saying that and just saying he doesn't want to choose life too is also sort of like a rebellious kind of like younger idea. 
And mm-hmm. I think like he, he wrestles with that later in the film when the high school girl, you know, says you're not getting any younger. Cause I think he, it's, it's almost like it was okay for him to be an addict and living with his parents and all that because he felt like, I mean, he was in that stage of life, but I feel like in the movie, he's slowly realizing, Oh, I'm like, almost 30. So <laughs> this isn't cute anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, I think Diane, uh, that uh, younger girl that is seduces him mm-hmm. once he, in one of his forays of being uh, sober and he has his sex drive back, um, you know, in the movie, she's 15 and she's played by an actress that Danny Boyle actually went out and just found somebody mm-hmm. um, because he didn't want anyone to know who she was so that they you know, so there wasn't any sort of issue with suspension of disbelief that this was some 15-year-old girl having sex with Ewan McGregor. Right. Um, but she's a great foil to, to rent because she's younger than him, but so much more mature. You know, mm-hmm. she's telling him, you know, like you said, things are changing, drugs are changing, music's changing. And then they show him in the club and he doesn't recognize any of the songs. He's just kind of bouncing, mm-hmm. you know, and he doesn't recognize any of the drugs and that great scene with um where Begbie ends up picking up a, uh, I guess a transsexual woman mm-hmm. and freaks out, you know, and, and, uh, Rinch just like, you know, et, you know, eventually there won't be men or women. We'll all just be wankers. And that sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Interesting too. Cause I mean, our, our ideas in society about gender have really changed since that movie even, you know? Yeah. And I, I think Rinch's character of just kind of accepting it was actually, uh, you know, as being 15 and young, influ- you know, influential, I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, sure, yeah. why not? I I agree. I think uh, to what you were saying about uh, Kelly McDonald, the, the actress that played Diane, it was really believable because it, when I was watching this again, I feel like I, it's been maybe 10 years or so since I had seen this film. And I kind of forgot about that part with her in it. And then mm-hmm. when there's that reveal it's it's so funny because the the scene before she had seen through him so perfectly like you know she calls him out when he's trying to pick her up and says oh let me guess and like just kind of picks him apart it's like that oh, it's that, beautiful. that doesn't sound like something that could come out of a 15 year old's mouth like <laughs> i know like i i'm 32 and i don't have the cojones to say that kind of stuff <laughs> So, yeah, like, Diane was the 15-year-old I wanted to be and actually never was. Yes. And she does have that look where, like, when she was in the dress and the heels, I mean, I would have guessed early 20s. But then when she's wearing the school uniform, I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And she was, like, 19. But still, I mean, that's an age where it's like, what age are you? You know, by looking, you can't tell. But um, Right. And like you said, her being kind of undiscovered really helps with that if she was like a famous actress that we all knew I think that that thought would would creep us out and we'd be like hey he knows but they play it in the movie to where he really doesn't and he's right. very innocent about it and tries so hard to get out of the relationship but she's the most mature person in his life so it's really hard for him to you know to separate himself from it and he, he ends up kind of turning to her later in the movie um a sort of a guide, which is kind of ironic, I think. <laughs> yeah, she kind of comes in when everything's just going to shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. She comes in whenever he's has this, like I said, this moment of sobriety, and then they go out 
into the Highlands where they have that great scene with Tommy and, and you know, he's like, he's like, let's go out and let's go hiking. Doesn't this make you proud to be Scottish? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you McGregor's like, it's shite being Scottish. And that <laughs> awesome, like, I, I hear it so well in my head. And, uh, you know, I can't do a Scottish accent. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's talking about, you know, how horrible it is. And they're in a shite state of affairs. And they immediately go on this huge, like, bender. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that scene was, was pretty amazing. Um, it's really definitely one of my favorite scenes and definitely, um, that monologue is something I could quote. Um, and then, you know, like I said, then there's that great, I say great, you know, to me, it was really explicit drug scene where they show him cooking up and shooting and shooting in the veins. Like I haven't seen that recently in more modern, uh, drug films and we all know I'm interested in them. So, (laughs) you know, I've seen them. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and to see that as a, as a teenager, I was like, Whoa, you know, it just made it more real, more gritty. Um, and then that really goes into the scene with baby Dawn. Golly, that scene. I know it's, it's hard. I just, I didn't see it coming. You know, the, one of the great things about this movie is they do not shy away about how awful it is when you are a drug addict and the things that you just give up, you know, mm-hmm. um, the consequences of addiction, you know, are just put there right in front of you, front of your face. And that is exemplified when baby Dawn, they see her in the crib and she's dead. You mm-hmm. don't know why. Well, I think it's the never bender lasted said. like several days to me. Like I was noticing yeah. when I watched it this time, that it looked like the baby had been dead a long time. It didn't look like the baby had just died to me. I don't know. Right. It looked almost like it was decaying. So it's like, how long had they been doing it, that? So, like, yeah, I feel like the death was related to that. Which yeah, makes definitely. it even scarier. Yeah, I mean, I don't know my rates of decay for a <laughs> human. Um, but... Um, I was kind of looking to see if there was a definitive reason, like was it neglect or, 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 you know, did it suffocate or something? Um, and it, you know, it's never explicitly said in the book or the movie, but the assumption mm. is neglect. And so starvation yeah, and dehydration and just that scene is so hard. Yeah. When they show the baby, you're like, ugh, that memory sticks with you. And and like you said, I don't really, I can't really think of a lot of, like when you compare this, and I can't help but compare this because it's like the other big drug movie, um, but when you compare it to like Requiem, I've heard a lot of people say they can't watch Requiem, you know, that they could watch it like one time ever and they can never revisit it. But to me, Requiem is a little bit, it, yes, this movie's funnier, but there's some scenes in this movie that I personally think are more disturbing, and this is one of them. Because I think oh, yeah. in Requiem, like, it's kind of similar, you know, the structure's different where it keeps all the characters a little bit more separate um, in their mm-hmm. addictions, and it's almost like four stories. Mm-hmm. But uh, they do cross over, there is selfishness, there is, you know, a lot of the same stuff, but I feel like in, in this movie, the consequences seem higher. Like, getting your arm chopped off is terrible, but the baby scene, like, I just can't really think of like a bigger bad thing to happen, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of movies that deal with drug use, um, either show it from the abuser's point of view and that everything's wonderful. 
mm-hmm. and they don't really show it coming down and coming back to reality or they just show the reality of it. They don't really show both. Mm, and I yeah, feel like, point. yeah, I feel like this movie shows both. Like they were enjoying having a good time and it shows them like, you know, they kind of show it in the beginning as well um, where they, where rent says, take the best orgasm you've ever had and multiply it by a thousand years, nowhere close, you know, and it shows that, you know, kind of, um, orgasmic expression on their faces when they get injected. And then, you know, it come, you know, it shows a, this bender happens and then here, you know, here's this hard reality. There's no coming back from this. You know, they have to live with this forever. And actually that is where the moment changes for sick boy. Cause you find out that was his baby. Mm-hmm. And you know, the movie opens with him having this unified theory about how everything works. And then this happens and he's just jaded and dark and guarded and that carries yeah. over into uh, train spotting too, where he is a pimp and a drug dealer, and you know he never recovered from this. Yeah, well, he he kind of he did do some pimping and drug dealing in this one too, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, later mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah, at the end, I think he was the one that came up. It was either him or Begbie that um, got the two kilos mm-hmm. of heroin off of Mikey Forrester. Yeah. It's interesting how, uh, you know, the the stakes get raised so much in the movie. You know, it starts off with them just sort of partying all the time. And then, like you said, the, the, the death happens. And then these giant deals happen where there's really big consequences. And, and they just, I think they do such a good job of showing how the, uh, the motivator, the drugs, um, how that could possibly be more motivating than you know, the dealing with those consequences or worrying about those consequences. Yeah. That's the, that's kind of the reason that they didn't grow up because they've never had to deal with the pressures of life, mm-hmm. you know? And he talks about that in the beginning about, you know, all these things that matter in life that actually don't when you have a sincere and genuine heroin uh, habit and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you talk about it getting, you know, more and more uh, consequences steeper and steeper as the movie goes on. And I just think about Tommy, played by uh, Kevin McKidd, who's now in Grey's Anatomy, apparently. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't watch Grey's Anatomy because it's been on for like a, a billion years. So mm-hmm. I have since fallen behind, but apparently he's now there. So good for him. Um, he's clearly not in Train Spotting 2 because his character died, but um, his character. Uh, you know, he was the one that was all about, he was really addicted to physical pleasure. So mm-hmm. lifting weights, having sex, hiking in the highlands. Um, but he never did drugs or, you know, got drunk. And then he broke up or his girlfriend broke up with him and he convinces Renton to, to shoot him up the first time. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes addicted. And it really, his story really shows how poor decisions and running from your problems really ruin your life. And for him, the consequences were huge. He ended up getting um, HIV mm-hmm. and died from toxoplasmosis <laughs> from cat shit. That was and, crazy. Uh, <laughs> I, I know. I was like, I have cats. <laughs> oh, no. Although I, I did appreciate the, this little touch of, of comedic, yes. like this little... Of, of, of the comedic timing where it's like the kitten's fine by the way because I did find myself being like oh but the kitten because they show this cute little tabby kitten just sitting there meowing next to this 
dead body that is Tommy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's just to show that the consequences, they just get more and more and more um, as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. It, you know, that ugh, I hadn't thought about that, but when you bring it up, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think with Tommy too, like, he hadn't done drugs and he hadn't drank, but you had a good point with he was addicted to other things. So mm-hmm. I feel like his addictive personality, it just, his varying degrees of like, you know, how successful his life was going to be just depended upon what he was addicted to. And when it was sex and working out, that was manageable. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, heroin is pretty different. Yeah. And it's really cool because, you know, we come into Rent, Sick Boy, Spud's life. Um, they're already deep in their heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. Tommy, we see him fall so quickly. So we see his apartment that's, you know, I wouldn't say lavish, but, you know, has all the amenities, you know, loads of tapes, nice couch, um, workout bench, nice bed, all this stuff. And then you see him at the end when Mark is going to visit him, you know, after after Mark is sober, sees, sees Tommy. Tommy's really sick, you know, diagnosed with HIV. And his, Tommy's apartment is now like dilapidated. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing in there, but like a half deflated soccer ball, a mattress on the floor, you know, and Tommy just crawls over and lies down in bed. Like this is good enough for him. And just to see where it starts to where it ends. Um, I think Tommy's story was really good to see that. It made me wonder like, what was Mark's life before? Was he always yeah. like this? Yeah, I felt like his parents, I mean, they really cared, and they mm-hmm. obviously tried to get him rehabilitated, but at the same time, I think they may have enabled him a little bit, because he could always just kind of come home. Right. You know? So. Right. Yeah, you don't see anyone else's parents, really. Yeah, it's like, I think his parents were maybe the last ones that hadn't, you know, cut him off. I mean, you see Spud's mom whenever he goes to jail. Oh, yeah, yeah but you don't really see what her role in his life is. Like mm-hmm. whether she is like, I don't even know if she talks. <laughs> I know she's just at the, uh, at the sentencing, right? Like, <laughs> well, she, she comes to the bar too afterwards oh, and just kind of stays right. there. And she stares at a uh, Trenton, right? Because yeah. he didn't go down. And right. he, he makes that half hearted, like, I'm sorry. He, he yeah. didn't go down or he went down and I didn't. Yeah. But it's like, ugh. well then, he that kind of goes into this one another one of my favorite scenes is the uh, overdose scene yeah that's a good one where so he goes so he's on this methadone he's been sober for a while and he goes and gets apparently too much um heroin and he just so he overdoses he lays down and it, it's really cool like it shows him sinking into the ground so you just see this red carpet mm-hmm. and just sinking into the ground and you know, the drug dealer, Swanee, just looks at him and looks like he's looking into a grave that is written. And, uh, you know, just that whole, and the music in there, if I heard that song again, I would know exactly what that is. Um, And it's it's a great juxtaposition because the song's like, it's such a lovely day, you know? (laughs) Because Mark feels great, you know? Um, And then it shows him coming out of the grave when the nurse gives him something to counteract the heroin. I'm assuming Narcan. Um, and then yeah. he comes back to life. It reminded me of the, the scene in Pulp Fiction with adrenaline. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I really like that was another one of my favorite scenes. And it just, it's also 
so dark because he doesn't call an ambulance. Nope. He just calls a cab, flops him into the cab, puts some money in, in his shirt pocket. The cabbie drops him off in front of the ER, takes the money, and just goes. Yep. yep. Well, he doesn't well, want to get caught. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, and I get it, but I mean, whew. And, you know, it wasn't, I don't know how big of a deal overdosing was back then, like it is now, mm-hmm. with fentanyl and all that in there. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think the movie does a pretty good job of showing how, I mean, that's like, that's the solution, right, that um, government programs have. They're like, oh, just do methadone. When that's yes. sort of treating the symptom and not really treating the, the root of the problem, the person still has access by being free and being around it to all those drugs. So the methadone doesn't really change anything and they're not learning any coping mechanisms by taking it. And right. Yeah. Right. And that's why he overdosed is because they went, you know, that, that was the day of they were in court and he was like, I can't, I can't do this. Not today. And that's when he goes and gets a hit mm-hmm. and it was a big one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's a really good scene. Yeah. And then it, it, um, it almost like goes, directly into the detox scene which is crazy i think that's probably my favorite scene (laughs) you like that better than the toilet scene well the toilet's pretty great (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh i have like a fear of uh public toilets so that scene is just (sighs) i mean it's not a public toilet toilet in scotland (laughs) it's so gross i just uh i have like literal nightmares Apparently it is, um, it was all chocolate and it smelled really sweet. Um, but, uh, Ewan McGregor's face, his retching, yes. you know, he sold it. He I sold know. it. But, uh, according to Danny Boyle, it was very sweet smelling on set. Yeah. Well, just the, again, I feel like the movie does a really good job of showing what you're giving up for the drugs or what you're willing to put yourself through. And mm-hmm. I mean, I just can't think of anything worse than digging around in your own shit <laughs> yeah yeah and not even his own point. remember it was full when he got there uh, i didn't remember that <laughs> why <laughs> i'm not even kidding you when i say that's like a weird not like a fear but like i have i feel like whenever i'm really really stressed i have like two or three dreams you know and mm-hmm. one of them is like i walk into a spider web and a spider attacks me or something even though i'm not that scared of spiders just that I guess being caught up in it is like scary. And then uh, another one is that I have to go to the bathroom and I like every stall I look in is just like destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'm literally going, what am I going to do? Like, I don't know what to do. And it's like a real, like that's a real first world problem dream, but <laughs> it is a real dream that I have. <laughs> so this scene is rough for me. It's rough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one thing that I think was neat about this scene is you really see the world through Ritten's eyes, you know. You see, you know, he's kind of our storyteller mm-hmm. through this, and he's he's climbing into a toilet that's gross. But in his mind, it's like this clean lake thing, because, like, once he's in there, the water is blue. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, so it's like, you know, he's your unreliable storyteller at this point. You're For seeing... Sure how messed up he views the world in this scene. But yeah. And then I don't know. I mean, he's still wet, 
when he gets back to the apartment. Oh, he's completely soaked. Yeah, so part of me is like, how deep did he go? <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Um, you know, because it's supposed to be a dream sequence. And so I remember when I was 15, I was like, did that really happen? Uh, you know, and... And then he, uh, when he walks back in, he's, like, tracking shit through his apartment. Blah. Blah. And just, the, just how abhorrent that is, how disgusting that is, like, and, and the fact that he's at the point of just being covered in it and walking through his own house, not worrying about, like, cleaning it up or how he smells. It's just, ugh. It's, like, it's so gross. <laughs> There's no the other way The things you give it. up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so then the other detox scene, I guess the the detox that works for him, um, that's where he's at after his parents pick him up from the overdose, and he's in his childhood bedroom. And uh, and he's just sitting there freaking out. I really, the thing I really like about this one is they had that, like, game show um, where the, the guy was quizzing his parents about HIV Mm-hmm. And then that kind of, you know, introduced like, oh, he needs to get tested for HIV. Yes. And, you know, honestly, I hadn't thought about that until that moment in the movie. I was like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. This so, was a huge thing. Yeah. And I think while I was watching it this time, I, I kind of interpreted that scene as like, you know, when he's when he's detoxing, um, not only is he having all these hallucinations, but he's also coming out of that drug haze. So he's dealing with, I feel like, facts he already knows. But mm-hmm. he was sort of just not dealing with or was so consumed by drugs he wasn't facing. So, like, I think that's why the AIDS thing comes up. Uh, Tommy be having AIDS. It's almost like he's like, now that he's, now that he's free from the drug, he's like, oh, no, all this stuff happened. The, the baby died. Mm-hmm. You know, Tommy's sick. I could have AIDS. Like, you know, that's another rough part probably about choosing sobriety, you know, mm-hmm. is that once you come out of it, you're going to have to deal with everything. And that's kind of, I, I think that was a really good way to like visually explain it without having a bunch of exposition as to what yeah. happened to everybody around him, you know? Yeah. It's literally the people and events in his life that are haunting him mm-hmm. and that are his reasons for staying on drugs you know spud being in jail where he's sitting on top of the door clanking yep. chains that are on his ankles um yeah the baby crawling on the ceiling i think that's pretty iconic uh for this movie i've seen it uh parodied in uh, other stuff like even family guy yeah <laughs> parodied it and um yeah you know because the baby's crawling on the ceiling kind of coming at him as you know I, I think you're right i think it's kind of showing that he's He's going to have to deal with this as he gets more and more out of his haze. And finally the baby drops on him and he, you know, that's kind of the end of his detox. Mm-hmm. Kind of loses it. Yeah. Yeah. And he looks like he's freaking out on the mattress and then it shows reality and he's just asleep. You know, just <laughs> yeah. kind of like he's dreaming. And that's when his parents wake him up, right? And they tell him he needs to go get tested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it does feel really unfair, like, that he doesn't have it, especially since he got Tommy hooked on it, and he cared so little about, I mean, like, that toilet scene. Not to keep bringing that up, but, like, (laughs) surely that gave him something. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, not well, not AIDS. I mean, maybe maybe a hepatitis or two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know what? That's a. I was wondering this. Did Tommy get HIV from heroin, or did he get it from a sex partner? I think they were implying heroin because around that time, that was like a big other way you would get it, either through sharing mm-hmm. needles. Or, you know, um, unprotected sex. But, I mean, th- it's possible either way, really. Yeah, you know, I was just wondering, like, since I don't really know the time frame of the movie, I'm sitting here like, what's the incubation time for HIV? And, how, <laughs> you know, how would it be detectable in blood? And, you know, but I don't know the time frame of the movie um, from when he started to when he was diagnosed. So, yeah. you know, the world may never know. Yeah, I know, like... Um, you know, I, I remember hearing when I was a kid, I mean, obviously they still do it now, but, you know, people will go around to addicts and, and donate clean needles just, you know, it's like they're not going to get not addicted on the streets, but at least they could have clean needles and not share needles. So oh, I feel yeah. like that's that's what they were implying. But yeah. you bring up a really interesting point because Tommy is... Yeah, it's like he doesn't practice safe sex. So, I mean, it really could be either one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, needle exchange programs, let me, don't even get me started, because they're illegal here in Kansas, and uh, I think that's ridiculous. But <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I have so many thoughts. Like, <laughs> I was, like, wondering if you wanted to go into that. I was, like, I was kind of wondering what, are, what your thoughts on addiction are. If you feel comfortable, you don't have to. Yeah, no, definitely. I definitely have thoughts. Like I said, I've had really close people in my life who have struggled with addiction. And actually, um, one of my bridesmen um, in my wedding, he died from an overdose. He took fentanyl and he died. And uh, so, you know, I definitely have selfish feelings about it. and I think that's why I watch these things, stuff like train spotting to understand like, you know, what's going through your mind that you need to do these things? Like I watch intervention. It's ridiculous. David, he hear, he hears it come on and he's like, I got to leave. Um, it makes the same way. Yeah. I, uh, well, I think that's very empathetic though, that you want to see that, especially having a close connection to it. I mean, because that, that really is really sad. And, well, you don't want to, I mean, you certainly don't want to hate somebody who's no longer alive, you know, um, and holding on to anger is not going to do anything for me, but, um, you know, I just, I want to be like, so what is it about it? You know, without, without getting, without doing it myself, you know, I have no desire to, to partake in any of those drugs. Um, I'm too much of a control freak (laughs) 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 to do these things. Um, but I definitely want to know that mindset so I can at least, understand it you know mm-hmm. um and for so long i had no idea uh that he was into such drugs and is because he was in so much pain and mm-hmm. you know of course you have that survivor's remorse of like well what if i'd done something um so really because i because i can't put my head in that space i think i like movies like this um party monster is a like is like that too oh, if you've yeah. ever seen yeah, that yeah i've seen that yeah that's another one I would love to talk about. Sure, <laughs> it has anytime. So yeah. many actors where I'm like, "What?" and then the club kid scene. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, I'm into movies about the early '90s. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably like your formative. I mean, almost all my favorite movies are between like 1998 and like 2001. So, 
I can relate. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I did, I like seeing the different forms that addiction takes. And this movie talks about a lot of them. You know, of course there's heroin, but uh, we talked about Tommy being addicted to kind of physical sensations. And uh, we didn't really talk too much about Begbie, but he's like, he's like the worst character in here. And he is addicted to violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the scene at the end where after the drug deal uh, goes down there in the bar and Begbie just like, he bloodies the face of a stranger who makes him spill some beer or something. And then he's like, yeah. he's kicking him. He's got a knife out. He cuts Spud's hand and he just stands there like basking in the afterglow of this violence that he's created and demands that Mark bring him a cigarette. And just that scene of the back and forth and it's just, oh. It reminded me a lot of, um, like, Joe Pesci in mm-hmm. Goodfellas and oh, yeah. um, Casino. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was just like, I mean, you're right. He's addicted to violence. And I also feel like they're kind of implying that the lifestyle that they're leading, I mean, this is, like, the kind of people that are going to be attracted to this. You know? I right. mean, really, why should Tommy be friends with all these heroin addicts well because they engage in really risky behavior and that's what he does i think that bigby i mean that's just another form of really risky behavior right i mean Mm -hmm. it's like it's not drugs it's not sex but it's it's something that is dangerous and they could get him in a lot of trouble and who would put up with that but these other people that are also engaging in behavior that's has pretty high stakes i feel like that's why they're all like attracted to each other yeah, it's like they all just kind of put up with each other's horrible behavior. Yeah. You know, you and you see that a lot with, like, um, if you watch, like, Intervention, you know, they, they have a boyfriend or something who's an enabler who's like, yeah, the behavior's not good, but, you know, or they're just as bad. And so, like, uh, Dawn's mom was a heroin addict. and Baby Dawn, her mom was a heroin addict, and mm-hmm. her father was Sick Boy, who's also a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, you surround yourself with people who approve of your life choices. Yeah, no one's telling them no, and that's that's why they're keeping them around. But then the the risk of keeping that person around becomes pretty obvious, especially with Big B. Yes. That is a rough scene. He's got a lot of yes. that, though, I guess. It's like every and he's time. Always, <laughs> yeah, and he's like wanted for armed robbery. And, you know, when he comes and stays with Mark in London and... Uh, I mean, it just gets worse and worse and into train spotting too. Like that behavior can continues like he hasn't changed. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think they did a good job showing why it's so hard to leave that lifestyle. Like Mark physically leaves the city and it still comes and finds him like, you know, through the Mm -hmm. form of his friends. But and then he ends up right back where he started. I, I really like how they're back in that same like room or apartment at the end, too when they do the the last really big deal, it's like oh. they're back in that same location, like in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. I guess, I, I can't remember whose place was that. Was that Sick Boys? Well, oh, uh, I think it might be Swannies. I don't know. You know, they all kind of look alike. They do look alike. <laughs> one, one drugged in kind of looks like the other. Yeah, I just, I felt like that was a really good... Like, they went from his nice apartment into London back to that. And it was, like, one of the first places they were in. I think that's why it stuck with me. Oh, yeah. I was like, yuck, he's back to square one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the thing about 
think about these characters is they're all awful people. (laughs) Yeah. There is no reason to like anybody. I mean, maybe Diane, but even then, like, I don't know, like she's going out and seducing older men and not telling them. Yeah. But yeah, like, you have even, to wonder what's going on at home that she would be doing that. It's kind of strange. <laughs> and her parents seemed okay with it? Yeah, I mean, she's also really, I mean, she says, are you clean now? But she's strangely comfortable with Trenton being a drug addict. So I don't mm-hmm. know if maybe something like that is going on in her personal life with one of her parents or, you know what I mean? Like, it's weird that she's so okay with that. Yeah, yeah. And she's obviously, I don't know, either escaping something at home or there's got to be something going on that she would do You know, do that. I kind of took it as the heroin problem was so strong that it was just normalized. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a you good know? point. That That's how I took it. But, like, you know, Mark is your main guy. And you, he's still a bad person. <laughs> like, he's terrible. I, I like at the end, though, how he kind of admits it. Yeah. He's like, yeah, well, he's like, I tried to justify this, but really, I mean, it's not justifiable. I screwed over all my friends. Yeah, he straight up says, the truth is, I'm a bad person. He's mm-hmm. like, but that's going to change. I'm choosing life. Yeah. The but, denial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see, and he, you can see him slowly change, which is nice. Like, when he goes to see Tommy, you... That's one of the lessons he learns. And some of the scenes that were cut from the movie um, were basically additional learning moments. Um, Mm. He goes and sees his main drug dealer in the hospital who had a leg amputated. Yikes. Yeah. Um, Or he sees, uh, he sees sick boy and they, and you know, they kind of talk about how he doesn't have a unifying theory anymore. Um, And these are all learning moments for Mark and they, they cut them from the, from the movie because it was kind of superfluous. Um, but, you know, you kind of see him become a little bit better. But he's still a horrible human being. He still stole 16,000 pounds um, and fucking left, you know? Like, what a dick move. And I think he left maybe 2,000 for Spud. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird, too, because knowing how violent uh, Bigby is, like, why even risk that? <laughs> You know, like, I would have just left without the money, like, you know, but I guess it was the drugs. Well, like, the he didn't have the, he used all his savings to go on this drug deal, so if he didn't take the money, he wouldn't have had any. I know, but it would still be better than having your face busted in with glass. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, he says in the movie, um... Uh, Begbie uh, really risks a lot with this drug deal because if he got caught with this on top of the armed robbery, he'd go to jail for 20 years. And, you know, the movie ends with police coming in to Begbie while he's trashing that room. Mm-hmm. And uh, Train Spotting 2 opens with him having been in jail for 20 years. Wow. So, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know if Mark was just banking on the fact that, you know, he would lose his shit and uh, get arrested, and so he'd be behind bars for 20 years? Or? That's a really good point, because, I mean, maybe he could tell that this that's where this was going. Because I, I think the thought was, okay, well, once we get this money, we'll just split it, and everything will be cool. But no, um, Bigby's going to keep upping the ante, because he's just, like, addicted to high stakes, I guess. <laughs> so well, I think, like, that, I think that last scene... Uh, you know, where Mark has to give him that cigarette and he's like just basking in this 
awful bloodshed that he's created uh, kind of just shows Mark, like, he's got to get the hell out of here. Nothing's mm-hmm. going to change. It's just going to get worse. And he says, as he's walking away, he didn't give a shit about Begbie. And, yeah. you know, he's like, sick boy. Well, he'd have done it first if he had thought of it. I feel so bad for Spud, though, when he's, like, tearing <laughs> up. I'm like, oh. I know, and he looks at him, and he's like, no, don't. With his hand all, like, messed up, wrapped in a towel because Begbie sliced it open and wouldn't let him go to the doctor. I That part kind of freaked me out, like, this time around, I couldn't remember the ending of the movie, and I was like, he doesn't die, does he? Because, <laughs> I mean, this is, like, deep, and I couldn't tell if it was his hand or his wrist at first. It's the palm of his hand, and oh. he doesn't die because he, he comes back in the, in the uh, sequel. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just, uh, I also felt like, yeah, the police are going to come after them. I mean, even, even if you know, for no other reason other than Bigby's going to attract police. Like, you know. Yeah, because he just, he just gets off on hearing people scream, I think. Well, I read, I don't know if you read this, but um, that scene with the transvestite where he really lost his cool, Mm -hmm. um, the actor uh, said that he was sort of playing the character as though he was... um, hiding the fact that he was struggling with his sexuality. Oh, yeah. I had read that, that, like, oh, Begbie's actually gay. Yeah, and, like, just during that time, it, you know, wasn't okay, or maybe it wasn't okay in his life, or who knows what his past is. And the author actually, like, agreed with him and was like, I I think that makes a lot of sense, like, if you interpret it that way. so. Well, yeah, Begbie's so about the, like, all that machismo and, Mm -hmm. you know... Lots of beer and lots of smoke and lots of, you know, lots of girls. And here comes this person who is, that he's attracted to, I guess, you know, dressed like a woman. And then he, he feels her penis and is like, no. Um, But his reaction, you know, Mark's like, you know, kind of laughing about it and joking, being like, it could have been wonderful. You don't know. And Bigby like picks him up off the ground by his throat and puts a knife between his legs, like just a couple inches south of his genitals. And yeah. like, it's like, you can't tell anybody. And Mark's like, whoa, you were overreacting. Yeah. And that, you know, that would make a lot of sense if it's a closeted character mm-hmm. struggling to admit even to himself. Yeah. Heavy episode, man. <laughs> <laughs> I like it's a it, heavy though. movie, but, it you know, is. I really like it. Me too. I think uh, when you were talking earlier about addiction, like, if you were to ask me what I thought about addiction when I saw this movie, just the age I was at, and now it's really uh, changed a lot. And I think mm-hmm. it, it kind of reflects how, I mean, I still think we have a long way to go, but I think as a society we've sort of changed in how we view addiction. You know, I think it used to be very clear cut and kind of to what you were saying, not a lot of movies would show sort of both sides. Like when we were kids, you know, they were like drugs are bad and people that do them go to prison and they're terrible people. And I think that the bad part about explaining it that way is it's not honest and your audience could tell when you're being honest, there's gotta be something attractive about drugs or people wouldn't do them. So I appreciate movies like this that show you both sides because it's more honest. And look, you were young when you saw this, you didn't immediately go out and buy heroin just because you saw, you know what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's okay to show both sides and to be 
a little bit more objective, which I feel like I don't watch this movie and go, well, I know exactly how, you know, Danny Boyle feels about heroin addiction and what the solution is. Right. But Mm -hmm. he's just kind of showing you a perspective of it from the perspective of the addict and not our perspective of somebody judging them, you know? Yeah. I I like that about it. I think Danny Boyle did a great job of kind of showing the seedy underside of Edinburgh, um, you know, in the 90s? I'm not exactly sure the time frame of this. It's hard I, I to tell by what they're wearing. I think he says, I, I had that thought too, but I think he says in the movie the 80s at one point. Oh, okay. I think he says that. Like, I think it's around the time when Tommy gets really sick. He mentions something about the 80s. Okay. But, but don't quote me on that. I'm not positive. <laughs> it was hard to tell, like, the music. I'm like, you know, just because I was, like, born in the 80s, I'm, <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> well, but. the soundtrack was very, you know, varied to match the uh, the various scenes, and I don't think it stuck to, you know, oh, the soundtrack needs to be, uh, you know, to the to the decade that it was set in. Yeah, true. You know, because uh, some movies do that, and I don't think this one did. I think Danny Boyle was more about um, let's get the right song to to express this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> Um, well, did you have any other, uh, scenes from the movie you wanted to talk about? No, man, I think we went over the whole We did, we went over the whole movie, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, what, what keeps you coming back to this movie? Well, you know, I kind of touched on it, it's like an insight into a world that I really know nothing about, but I kind of remember hearing about as, as a kid, so like, you know, in the early 90s, um, there was a heroin epidemic in Plano, Texas. Oh, I didn't I know that. Seeing, I remember seeing a MTV True Life about it back when True <laughs> Life was a you know hard hitting documentary on MTV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the AIDS epidemic a little bit. You know, like I said, I remember going to the uh, AIDS quilts, um, but not really understanding what was going on. So this, I, I get to see like it's like learning a whole new world that you kind of know about. Um, and I've talked about how, you know, it, this helps me understand, um, the choices that some of, some of people in my life have made about abusing drugs. Um, it helps me empathize with them, you know, to be like, why, why are you making these decisions and throwing away your entire life? Um, so yes, since there's no easy answer to why people choose to use drugs, um, or really no answer is good enough. I mean, mm-hmm. no answer is good enough as to why someone would choose drugs over their family or over their lives. Um, so I, I guess I just keep looking. And so I keep looking to movies like this. Um, and I just, I love Danny Boyle's storytelling, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen this movie umpteen times. When I watched it again the other night, I was like, yes! <laughs> you know, the music, as soon as it starts and you hear that, that do 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 you know? Mm-hmm. Um and and Mark goes into his choose life monologue. Like I was I was already in it. I was ready to go. It's a great opening scene. Yeah, it really is. Um. Well, let's see. I I guess for me, what keeps me coming back? Um. I I really I I completely agree with everything you said. Um. I feel I feel like you said it. You put it the best way. But um. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that it, it does a good job of showing that the drugs are what's in control of that person and how that person's personality, their motivations, everything gets tied up into it and how, 
how it eclipses them, you know? And so they're almost like not able to make any of those choices anymore. Um, and how, how that happens differently for each character and how they get there. Um, and yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, as you said, Danny Boyle is just an incredible director. So I can't really think of a bad movie he's done. <laughs> and I have some favorite directors that I do feel that way about, but with Danny Boyle, like I've liked pretty much everything he's ever done. And this is, I think the first thing that I saw that he did. So it, it really sticks out in my mind. Um, this movie has a lot of fears that I have in it. Like I told you the, the bathroom thing is for some reason just <laughs> the toilet fear. Yeah. I think I'm just a, a bit of a germaphobe. Um, the idea, I think growing up, because we grew up in, in the time that we did, I was really afraid of drugs, like, as a child. Like, you know, because it was just so preached at us so often. So I child, think, child of the D.A.R.E. program. Exactly, yeah, which they say is was not effective. But anyway, it was right. effective for me <laughs> when yeah. I was nowhere near any drugs. So, um, yeah, I uh, I guess, uh, so, so the, the drugs, the bathroom thing, and then... AIDS, I think, was a really scary thing when we were kids because you were hearing a lot about it. Mm -hmm. um, I even remember I had a neighbor uh, who had a son, and I was like, I don't know, four? Yeah, I think four or younger because my parents were still together. So I don't know if these are real memories or if it's just things that they told me, but there was a little boy that lived next door that, had, that was HIV positive from a blood transfusion. Because ah. in the early 80s, that was something they didn't think about. And, you know, the, the disease was so highly stigmatized. It was like, oh, this is like almost like a punishment for choosing homosexuality. I mean, that was a really big stigma back then. I mean, that's what people kind of thought. And then when people started getting it from blood transfusions, and obviously it was not limited to homosexuality. There were other ways of getting it. Um well, not other ways of getting it, but other ways, well, yeah, other ways to contract yeah. it. And also it's not like a punishment or something. It's not something you can just relegate to one group of people. It's just a disease, you know, you know that doesn't I have did. morals yeah. attached to it that we, that people wanted to attach to it. I mean, I think when people are afraid, they try to make things up like that to explain them. And so, so yeah, I knew about that little boy that lived next door. And then also my mother had, some close friends um, that that were gay that um, that I knew pretty well, and one of them got sick and died too. So uh. the that um, disease, um, AIDS, and you know HIV, it it was really scary to me as a kid. I really didn't understand it, and I think as a society we didn't understand it. So it's interesting to go back and watch this movie now. I mean, I even think how I felt about it in the 90s to now is different, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I've just grown as a person, and society's grown with me, and it's not highly stigmatized. I don't associate any judgment with it. But, and, and in fact, it's just so sad, those scenes where Tommy's being judged for it. Mm -hmm. I think Dallas mm -hmm. Fires Club does a great job of explaining that. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, it's a really heavy movie for me. It's... Um, like I said, I haven't seen it in a while. <laughs> That's probably yeah. why, because it's like there's other stuff tied up in this movie for me other than just the movie itself. But right. I think that that speaks to it being a great movie because it, it is sort of capturing 
a period in time. I'd be interested to see what somebody younger than me watching it for the first time would think, not having grown up in that time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I had I had kind of floated the idea of like movies that inspired your career um, mm-hmm. to you as a as a session. And you know, now that I think about it, this is probably one of them. I'm super interested in AIDS, and actually to the point where, you know, this may have been one of my first you know, I guess deeper dives into it, a more adult approach to AIDS. Um, And actually I went to, I did my graduate degree internship in Japan studying AIDS. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was comparing it, I was comparing it to the U S and the stigma there is still real. You know, Um, everyone's names are, uh, they're, they're kind of like, scrambled and when their diagnosis on their sheet is not AIDS, it's scrambled up letters for AIDS basically. And, um, you know, you have to register with your local government to get the medication and some people don't want to do that. And it's still linked with homosexuality. And I said, well, what about IV drug users? And they were like, we don't have those in Japan. Oh yeah. Drug use in Japan is extremely stigmatized. I mean, if you think it's stigmatized here, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, in Japan, it's like, if you get caught doing it, especially like if you're famous, like over here, we're like, oh, that's what celebrities do. But mm-hmm. over there, it's like your career's over forever. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see what happens when a disease or a crime is associated with certain things and how instead of trying to find a solution to it, we just try to wall it up or push that group away, you know? And right. I think movies like this help with um, not doing that. Because, I mean, while they're not glamorizing it and while, you know, Danny's not saying, like, isn't this awesome? Like, don't you want to join this group? But, <laughs> but he is saying, like, these are, these are real people and, you know, things are happening to them, you know. Right. As well as making choices. So, yeah. Well, and they're, they're poor choices and lack of, uh, I, you know, I describe this as a coming of tale or coming of age tale and, Um, you know, I watched it when I was coming of age. Um, Mm -hmm. and I wonder if that's one of the reasons I really connect with it. You know, these characters don't know what they're doing. (laughs) And at 15, I surely didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, the way that they handle growing up is by not. (laughs) Right. And I feel like too, like around that time, and even now there's like sort of an idea about like teenagers or young people like, Oh, you know. They have no direction. They're not going anywhere. And even though we've all kind of gone through that phase, we're so judgmental about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it, if, it, if you can connect that to your own, I guess, coming of age, you're going to have a different take on those characters than someone that's not sympathetic with that, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I think, like, if a uh, Reaganomic 80s, you know, supporter were to watch that movie, they probably would have a much different view of it than I did. Yeah, <laughs> they like probably I, wouldn't watch it again. Yeah, I can't imagine what like my parents would think watching it. Like, I don't think either one of my parents has seen that movie, and I don't know what they would say or like. <laughs> they'd probably be like, "Why did you watch this?" They'd be like horrified. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why did you tell us to watch it? <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I won't. Uh, well, what would you say to someone that's never seen this movie before? Um, I'd probably describe it as a movie about a world that's so unlike most people's everyday lives that it's a darker look uh, into Scotland, but, you know, because that's where it's set. And, and I think that's kind of fun as an American to hear 
ha- you know, the different slang they mm-hmm. use, but really it's a darker look into of addiction, mm-hmm. which are not shied away from. Um, and not just drug addiction, but the, you know, various forms of addiction. Mm-hmm. And if you like Danny Boyle or Ewan McGregor, this is a great example of both their works. I I agree. Yeah. I, I think that this movie, there was a bunch of, I guess I was touching on earlier, there was a bunch of really highly stylized directing styles that came out around this time. Maybe mm-hmm. that was because this is, I mean, music videos came out a little bit before this, but I feel like a lot of, there was a lot of director, directors that were sort of transitioning from music videos to this. And like during this time, like MTV was still really big. And I feel like all that kind of influenced directing and I mm-hmm. like that look a lot. Um, I feel like you don't see it as much anymore, you know? That gritty look? Yeah, and just, like, all the surreal visuals and everything. I, I don't know. I, I don't think... I feel like everybody's kind of shifted towards a different tone almost. Yeah. You know? Well, I think some movies, they don't expect, or some directors maybe, they don't expect their audience to think as much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I would say maybe someone younger than me, like, this is a little slice of, I, I guess, when the drug epidemic was happening and how you get, kind of get to see how society views it, but then also mm-hmm. like a more personalized look at it that's mm-hmm. more complicated than maybe what we were shown. Um, well, what's interesting is to if you were to compare the heroin epidemic of the early 90s, which is what they were talking about here, to the one happening today. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I uh, I was like, I wonder how, you know, like the fact that, you know, we actually give Narcan or there's push to Narcan to give Narcan to users so they can, um, uh, you know, stop an overdose right away. Um, of course, you know, like Diane saying, drugs are evolving. Drugs are different. Heroin mm-hmm. now is not the heroin of the 90s. That's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very true. So, yeah, I guess what we're saying is we're not pitching this as a a fun movie. No. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to think about something, if you want, you know, a a drama that's, that's stylized and different, like this definitely delivers on that. It is engaging and enthralling. And it's not, uh, you know, some movies that make you think they take you a while to get into it. And that's not the case with this, you know, I'm in right away. That's true. Um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, I really enjoyed talking this movie with you. This is yeah. awesome. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, most for people don't uh, don't want to talk about heavy-handed stuff like drug addiction and AIDS in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't phase me. I, I like a, a lot of my favorite movies have darker subject matter, and it's you know, it, it, like you said, it, it is tough to talk about. It's like you're almost afraid to say anything, how your opinion might be taken or what people might read into, but. At the same time, I mean, these are really popular, um, great movies for a reason, and they they warrant discussion, so I, I like talking about it. But yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and I I want you back, so Yay! we need to pick another movie so we can do this again. I mean, maybe something not quite so, uh, so dark. I was like, oh, Party Monster is a fun movie, but that is also about drugs and death, so... <laughs> <laughs> you know what, what whatever you pick, I mean, again, if I gave you, like, my top 25, they're not, 
somebody told me I, at work, like I told them my top 25 and they're like, you need to watch like some Disney movies or like, they were like, are you okay? No, dude, Disney movies are dark. What are people, they just don't remember Disney. Yeah. I should have just said like, yeah, my favorite Disney movie is the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yes. <laughs> Which it really was. I actually have the art book. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so there, uh, but yeah, like, uh, <laughs> but no, I really did. I really did enjoy this discussion. Um, I can't wait to have you back and, uh, yeah, put your list together. Oh, will do. Okay. Well, I will talk to you later. Yeah. All right. Thanks. No problem. Bye Kelly. Thanks. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Really enjoyed, uh, having Kelly on this week and discussing, a more serious topic, but, you know, discussion of a movie nonetheless that I really enjoy. So thank you so much again. Uh, if you want to be part of the conversation and give us any feedback, you can always reach me on Twitter at AYA Lisa Cosplay. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram under AYA Anna's and Nancy AMI Lisa. And you can also reach me in our closed Facebook group that's called I Love That Movie. It's closed, but if you send me a request, I'll add you. It's just a safe space for us to discuss film and, you know, just be able to talk about it with no judgment. Uh, my only rule is just don't be mean to each other. And so far, it's going pretty good. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you. Uh, and as usual, I'm going to mention that if you leave us an iTunes review, you will be entered to win a $20 gift card. Uh, for a movie theater chain of your choice. We are at 11 reviews right now. And once we get to the 15th positive review, that's when I'm going to make the drawing. So please continue to give those. Also subscribe. Uh, doing both these things helps the podcast get more visible and for more people to be able to see it and enjoy it with you. So again, thank you guys so, so much for listening. And I look forward to hearing from you next week. Thanks. Bye.